bust it. Try to do what those ladies tell us Get shot down cause you're overzealous Play hard to get females get jealous Okay smarty, go to a party Girls are scantily clad and showing body a chick Hey what's up everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the 4040 Vision Podcast Ultimate Sports History Pod brought to you by Sideline Sports I'm the host of Sam Dahoud and with me today is my buddy Khaled Abdullah, how's it going? Going good man Good, good, we're, we're recording this on March 24th, 2022 We're going to talk about the biggest what ifs from the Showtime era of the Lakers, one of the absolute richest eras in the history of basketball. We would do an all-Lakers one, but the Lakers are kind of the, the standard of the NBA. They have a lot of championships, especially from this period of history where basketball, really the popularity of, of the sport we know today, uh, really began. And th- this, this era is, has come up a lot lately because of the HBO show Winning Time, based on uh, the book Showtime. Uh, by Jeff Perlman, who's wrote some great books on the 90s Cowboys, uh, Brett Favre, Walter Payton, the 80s Mets, and the Shaq and Kobe Lakers, too. Uh, so this was just a really wild time in the NBA where anything goes. So we want to share some of our, our favorite nuggets from the book and, and, and from that Showtime era. So uh, the, the way it works is we'll, we'll look at some of these scenarios. We'll uh, explain them for what they are and what could have been had things gone a little bit differently. Uh, so Khaled, you, we we have a list here. I'll, I'll I'll hand it to you first. What's what's number one on the list? So it's it's fair to say, or it's pretty safe to say that without Magic Johnson, there is no Showtime. There's no Showtime Lakers. There's no Lakers dynasty in the uh, 1980s, and there probably isn't you know the NBA as we know it. And what's crazy is that it was literally a coin flip away from not happening. So. Uh, ahead of the draft where uh, the Lakers selected Magic Johnson, the Bulls and the Lakers had a coin flip to decide draft position, draft order. And it came out after that if the Bulls won the coin toss, Magic Johnson would have actually gone back to school for another year. He didn't want to play in the cold, and the Bulls were not the marquee franchise that we know today. So this is a good what if for both teams, of course, because if you know, maybe Magic gets convinced to go to Chicago and he gets to turn around that franchise before Michael Jordan and he becomes the greatest bull of all time versus the greatest Laker. Um, and of course, for the Lakers, if they don't win that coin toss, they don't get Magic, they don't get all of the above. So I think it's an underreported thing. I don't think it was, it's really like a big part of the the Magic story. But did you know about this when it, uh, you know, obviously not at the time, but did you know about this going back to, to Magic's history? Yeah, having been born in 1989, I remember it like it was yesterday. No, uh, I, I I read the book before the show came out, um, so I learned about it pretty pretty recently. And it's, it's, it's funny, right, in hindsight, when you see how archaic some things are. I mean, it's not like they're doing anything, uh, reinventing the wheel with ping pong balls right now uh, when they figure out the lottery. But they were doing it with a coin flip. They're like, all right, guys, do you call heads or tails like it was the kickoff to the Super Bowl? I mean, you know, the NFL still does a coin flip, right? They do? Really? Yeah. I don't know, they, I don't know anything. They still do. <laughs> I think, um, I, I don't know, a few years ago, I think the Niners and Raiders had the same record. They had the similar, I think they do 
uh, overall record, conference record, division record, blah, 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 all these tiebreakers. And it literally came down to a coin flip. If you meet all these criteria at the end of the day, they might just have to flip a coin to decide who drafts first. So it's archaic, but the NFL still does it. If the NFL is doing it, I have an idea, NBA, televised the coin flip. Oh, the the drama. And you can get like a special commemorative coin, maybe auction it off or sell replicas. Make it I, a, I can see it happening. Make it an NFT or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> NBA top shot. Number one <laughs> selling top shot. Yeah, very it's 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 crazy. Uh he didn't want to play in Chicago. Chicago wasn't uh anything significant at the time. And uh, he wanted to be in in the sun. He wanted to be, as as the author described it, women in wallet-sized bikinis. Uh, so he said, there's no way I'm going to play in Chicago. Uh, and interestingly, at the time, uh, Jerry West was was running the Lakers as, as the head coach. And he actually didn't want Magic Johnson. He didn't think that uh, a, a guy at 6'9 could play point guard. He wanted Sidney Moncrief, right? Tell us a little more about Sidney Moncrief. Well, before we do, it's kind of crazy to think of Jerry West as like anti-innovation, right? Because tradition says, you know, if you're 6'9", whatever, 220 pounds, whatever magic was, you know, you're going to play the four. Maybe you play the five if you're uh, a little stronger than anything, but or than some of these other guys. But you're traditionally going to play power forward. But magic, being a point guard, being this big, just I guess Jerry West couldn't see the vision. Uh, but this is also the same guy that saw the NBA becoming more of a shooter's league and not trading Clay Thompson for Kevin Love. And he's the architect behind, you know, some the, the Warriors dynasty and some of these great Clipper teams that we've seen um, in recent years. So, yeah, I guess that's an, a, a negative for uh, Jerry West. But, yeah, he was not convinced about Magic Johnson. He wanted Sidney Moncrief, who was a more traditional size point guard slash two guard 6'3", 180. So that's what you usually see in a point guard. Uh, and to his credit, I mean, Moncrief was a good player. He's a five-time All-Star with the Milwaukee Bucks. He played for about 10 years. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, so he's a great player, but he's obviously not a top 10 all-time player like Magic Johnson. So another, you know, coin flip possibly type situation. We know Jerry Buss fell in love with Magic Johnson. He saw the vision of, of Showtime and run and gun and all that stuff with Magic leading the way. But it could have been an interesting situation if uh, if they drafted Sidney Moncrief instead. They let anyone into that Hall of Fame. Sidney Moncrief is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, so is Mo Cheeks. So is uh, I mean, Dwight Howard's probably a future Hall of Famer. Dwight Howard won Defensive Player of the Year three <laughs> times. Stupid calendar. He won Defensive Player of the Year three times in a row. I mean, he was incredible. Yeah, he's just like a he's a kind of a punchline and he, he deserves being like the top 75 list and all that stuff, too. But, yeah, they, they're they're definitely not as stringent as the NFL is with the requirements. But again, he's a five time all star. He played for a long time. So, I mean, you don't you definitely don't think Hall of Fame when you think of Sidney Moncrief, but you know. <laughs> the average 15 points a game. <laughs> I think Mitch Richmond's in the Hall of Fame. Shout out Golden State. But <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of guys you're like, really? Him? Yeah, really? That guy? <laughs> I mean, they count like college, they count uh Olympic stuff. I think uh Ryan Rosillo always says if if you all if you have to talk about a guy's Olympic achievements and the gold medals as like a justification for him getting into the hall, then he doesn't deserve it. And I think Oof. that's that's a pretty good <laughs> pretty good criteria. Yeah, 
Yeah. But I mean, well, yeah, five-time All-NBA, too. Five-time All-Defensive Team, two-time Defensive Player of the Year. So, you know, he's got the credentials. But again, he's no Magic Johnson. Yeah, I think the the clear-cut what-if for this is if they don't get Magic Johnson, the Lakers are nowhere near what they are today. They were absolutely the team of that decade. And every sport kind of has a team that runs every decade. The Lakers were the team that dominated the most in the 80s, the Bulls in the 90s, uh, the, the Lakers again in the 2000s a, a little bit. So, uh, yeah, this was this is a no-brainer to me. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely worked out for the better. All right. Let's go on to the next one here. So that, that was 1980. In 1986, uh, it's more so what if the Lakers traded James Worthy and Byron Scott for Roy Tarpley and Mark Aguirre? Aguirre. Yeah, that name always throws me off. <laughs> yeah. Because, I, you know, with this Latin uh, pronunciation, you think it's like Aguirre. Aguirre. <laughs> but I think, I think his grandfather, I was reading about him, his grandfather is, is from Mexico, so maybe it's supposed to be Aguirre, but he just decided to switch it up on us. But, yeah, this is a good one. It's uh, from the book. I mean, it's the the reason, the reasoning behind this trade that was on the table was a big part of it was magic was – great buddies with Aguirre. So he was kind of the shadow GM uh, of the Lakers and he was really pushing for that trade. But uh, I think it was Jerry West that pulled the plug on it. So give him credit. He didn't want magic, but he knew that uh, this trade wasn't, wasn't the right decision for the Lakers. Yeah. He, he pointed out that yes, Mark uh, Aguirre, I think growing up in California makes me want to say Aguirre, but he knows that Mark Aguirre was a talented player, but he was kind of like a me first guy. He was going to demand the ball, mess up the, the chemistry of Showtime. They were uh, really good competing back and forth with the Celtics in the middle of the 80s and didn't think that uh, he would fit in. And obviously James Worthy was a number one pick that they were very fortunate to get uh, just a couple of years earlier. That was a really important part of uh, the Lakers run in the eighties. So yeah, I, I agree with Jerry West here and they had other options uh, at that time, but I think that this was a good call. Even the, the whole James worthy selection could have been uh, Dominique Wilkins, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, you know, a different conversation. It seems like Jerry West was set on uh, the James worthy selection and trading for Byron Scott. Yeah. Dominique went, went third um, in that 1982 draft. Um, I think with, with James Worthy, he just he, it took him a little while to get started. Uh, you know, he did he only started one game his rookie year, even though he, he made you know the all rookie team. Um, it just took him a while to get warmed up, which I think is expected, right? If you're the number one pick, you're coming to a team with huge personalities. You've got Kareem and Magic and all these guys, so it's it's going to be hard to to find your place, especially when you're coming from a situation at, at UNC where you're you know the best player, you're the alpha, and you have to kind of learn how to defer to these other guys, but yeah, ultimately it, it was the right decision because James Worthy becomes a key part of, you know, the later championship uh, runs. And then of course, Byron Scott was, was just as important uh, to those runs. And both of those guys end up winning, uh, you know, two or three rings or three rings each with, with the Lakers. And I think what kind of inspired or motivated West to stay away from Aguirre because he was so dead set on chemistry as they uh, traded for a player named Maurice Lucas, who they had brought on as a bruiser to 
uh, kind of similar to Kurt Rambis, just beat the shit out of the other team's players. Uh, but Maurice Lucas was very self-centered. He was very, he was consistently frustrated. He never seemed to really get the bigger picture. And I think he just didn't want that in the locker room again, in, or even risk the chance of it being in the locker room again. That was an ongoing theme in this, uh, this era was trying to find those kind of auxiliary parts to, you know, you have the core, you got the, the dynamic duo Kareem and magic, and you're trying to find complementary pieces. And because it was the NBA in the eighties, if it wasn't a guy who had like personality issues, there was guys that had drug issues because cocaine was such a prevalent thing. So it was just, just trying to find the right puzzle pieces. And there's, I think a lot more failures than successes when it comes to those guys and trying to fit them in. Uh, but ultimately, like like we said, they made the right decision, of course, by by not making that trade. Uh, and I think it, it's a good segue to the third what if and what what happened in, in 1989. So do you want to tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So in 1989, the Lakers uh, had already won two championships uh, in a row. They were going for uh, a three peat. It's funny because three peat was coined by a different player on the Lakers. His name escapes me right now. I think it was Pat- Norm Norm Nixon, or was it? Um, no, is Wes Matthews. It was Wes Matthews. Wes Matthews Senior. Wes Matthews Senior had said it. We're going to three peat. Pat Riley said, "I like that," and he goes and he gets it patented. He gets three peat patented, uh, and Wes Matthews was like, "I couldn't believe he freaking patented it after I said it," <laughs> which was which was uh, just a, a fun nugget that gets buried again in in, in history. But th- so they're looking to three peat. And the what if here is what if Magic Johnson doesn't get hurt uh, in that series against uh, the Pistons? Do, do, do the Lakers three-peat? And it's an interesting part of this because going into that, they had a pretty tough series uh, with the, excuse me, not tough enough according to Pat Riley series with the Phoenix Suns. And he wanted them to destroy the Pistons. The Pistons were a bit of an irritant <laughs> uh, in, in, the, in the 80s. Uh, they were a tough team too. And they wanted to, to kill the Pistons. But where Pat Riley went wrong, he kind of set himself uh, against his own team as a bit of a dictator. He, they were doing these really hard scrimmages. Uh, that were, and they were like, this isn't training camp. The players were saying, like, we're, this is upsetting us how hard we're working. We didn't really need to work this hard. Even the personal trainer, Gary Vitti, said, like, it was a boot camp, but... I didn't criticize him for it. Look at him. He's Pat Riley. You have to assume he knows what he's doing. Uh, and then the first reality check hit them during a box out drill. Instead of just doing some light shooting, he's like, we're going to do this box out drill. And Byron Scott, who was a very important uh, piece on the team, ends up uh, tearing his hamstring. And he was pretty much he was out for, for the playoffs. Did you know about that? I did. Yeah. And, and I think at that by that point. Pat Riley was kind of an egomaniac, right? He was, he was running the team like, like a dictator. He was starting to get, uh, you know, the, the disease of more that he talks about, right. That we talked about before the pod. Uh, and it was starting to affect him. He started to think that he was the, the, the driver behind the success. And I think that's a common theme that we see in, in pro sports where, uh, you know, GMs or coaches start to think that they're the ones that that are ultimately responsible for the success of the team, even if, you know, they don't give the players enough credit. So 
Um, I did know about the Byron Scott injury, and I know that there was another industry in injury to Magic Johnson. Uh, and they, they thought it was because, again, because Pat Riley was was working these guys too hard. Of course, this is before the era where, you know, we talk about rest and sports science and all these things. So to him, he was probably like, we're going to get we're going to be tougher and, and in better shape than the other team. Uh, and we're going to do so by by beating the shit out of each other in uh, in, in practice. Yeah, and it ended up being the exact opposite. They were tuning him out. They resented him by the time the game started. They resented him more than they resented the Pistons by the time the final started. They started tuning him out. And a lot of times when dynasties end, you see this a lot. I remember most recently uh, you had Golden State when Kevin Durant was there, kind of tuning out Steve Kerr and, and running his own offense at times. You had Pep Guardiola being tuned out by the Barcelona players at the end of his run there. So that's kind of like a telltale sign of something coming to an end. Uh, and, and it happened. They were uh, uh, in, in, in the second game, I believe, first or second game uh, in the third quarter. Uh, Isaiah Thomas pushed uh, the Pistons up to, to take the lead. And then uh, next thing you know, Magic Johnson is, is grabbing his left hamstring. And he never com- he comes back the next game. Uh, plays for four minutes uh, at the Forum in L.A., and then they take him out. And, and that was it. They got swept by the Pistons. It, it was a beatdown by, you know, of epic proportions. And, I mean, the, the Pistons were obviously no joke. They ended up, uh, you know, repeating the next year. So they were obviously a great team. They're all the way up. And I think one of the reasons that I, I said it was a segue into or, or from the previous one about James Worthy and Mark McGuire is that, the, the Pistons famously traded for Mark Aguirre and he went against that reputation that he had of being that me first scorer. And he ended up being a real gritty type player for the Pistons where he didn't, wasn't too concerned about his own scoring. He let, he deferred to, to Dennis Rodman who was playing more and more ahead of him because of the things that he could do that Aguirre couldn't. So maybe if the Lakers traded for him, maybe he becomes that player for them. But ultimately, them not pulling that trigger gives the Lakers a few championships, but it also helps the Pistons win a couple championships as well. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of how I answer this question. I don't think they three-peat either way. It's really hard to do it. It's why you don't really see it happen often in basketball. And the Pistons that decade, they went through the gauntlet. They were sick of everybody's shit. They had lost and suffered enough heartbreak that nothing was going to stop them. And I think Pat Riley wore this team out and the Pistons just beat the crap out of them. They're the most bitter back-to-back champs like ever. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, they just, it's, maybe it's Isaiah being constantly disrespected by Michael Jordan and, and being kept off the dream team and the the reputation that they have of just being, I mean, they're bad boys. That's That's their nickname. And at the end of the day, like people root for the bad guy, but but not really, you know, people want to root for the hero, the, the guy with the big smile, the, the knight in shining armor. And that's magic Johnson. That's Larry bird. That's uh, Michael Jordan. That's not Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambier and Dennis Rodman, like beating the shit out of guys every time they drive to the lane. So you're probably right. Even with a healthy Lakers squad, the, the Pistons were younger, hungrier, more physical in an era that allowed for that. So I think they, they do end up winning that, that series, even with a healthy Lakers team. Absolutely. Uh, anything else on this one? No. So I, I think that that's it for the, the what ifs. So I think you have one more about uh, our buddy, Paul Westhead. 
Yeah, yeah. So Paul Paul Westhead, I want to dial it, go back in time for 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 a minute. Paul, Paul Westhead ended up taking over for the team uh, after Jack McKinney, who uh, had kind of created the whole Showtime formula in a freak accident, falls off of his bike, hits his head, and and is unable to to physically coach. So Paul Westhead uses the uh, Jack McKinney system, and they won the title that year uh, in, in, a, in very impressive fashion against uh, the Philadelphia 76ers. So he, the following season, he abandons that formula. Uh, he ends up uh, this strange system where everyone would just run to a spot and then just see if their, their number is called during that possession. Oh, is it my turn? Oh, is it Kareem's turn? The, the players hated it. Uh, and they were embarrassingly eliminated by the Houston Rockets in the first round the year after they won the championship, where Moses Malone, who I would say is one of the most underappreciated uh, legends in NBA history, just took Kareem to the woodshed, putting 30 points and 15 rebounds a game or something uh, on the Lakers. And they went 7-4 and four the following season after losing to Houston, and he was fired uh, for Pat Riley. I mean, Jerry Buss is never, never scared to, to pull the trigger and then take a gamble. Uh, and yeah, so maybe if he doesn't get, to, doesn't get a big ego, doesn't think that he's the, again, the, the disease of me, the disease of more, if he doesn't think that I'm the one that's driving this success, uh, maybe we don't get Pat Riley. Maybe we don't get the, uh, the dynasty across the, the eighties with, with Pat Riley leading the way. Maybe again, we don't get Pat Riley leading, uh, the the New York Knicks back to relevance, and then of course the, the Miami Heat later on um, to a couple championships. So that, that's a hell of a what if. Uh, one interesting nugget about Paul Westhead: he might be the only coach. I'm going to take a stab here, just a guess that he's the only coach to win a championship in the NBA and the WNBA. Oh, really? Yeah, he won that's the cool. w championship with the Phoenix Mercury in 2007. Oh. Well, that's uh, I want, what did he do? Did he use the same system or did he play Showtime? What did he do? <laughs> well, hopefully he wasn't uh, quite as uh, restrictive, and you know they had a they had a great team. Diana Rossi, the probably the best women's player of all time. Uh, maybe you you prefer Sue Bird, but yeah, he, maybe he learned his lesson from uh, trying to to lasso. Uh, Maddie Johnson and Kareem, and just let let the players do their thing. So, oh, what a front runner! He got the goat on his team. <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> that's, that's a good trivia question. Who's the only coach in basketball history to win? Uh, I'm going to fact check that because it sounds right, but who knows? <laughs> it's it's a huge it's a huge interesting what if because he, if he doesn't make that blunder, he sticks to that system that just carved up the NBA. Uh, maybe we don't get the Pat Riley that's a, f- a top 15 coach of all time. You don't get the Armani suits and uh, the, <laughs> the, the Miami culture that's, that's irrelevant today. Hashtag we back, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Pat Riley became a, a dynasty across three decades in his own right in, in different, uh, d- different uh, organizations. So it's a huge one. Yeah, he's, he's an absolute icon the the you know the signature look with the hair and the the suit i always thought he was italian but i guess he's irish i think maybe it's the look the slick back hair and stuff i thought it was an italian uh, mobster type but uh, he's he's irish tremendous hair <laughs> all right so i think that that's it for the what ifs um uh, 
So we we also wanted to call out a few you know crazy nuggets and and funny things that that I noticed or we both noticed from the book. If you haven't read it, you know I know you don't maybe you don't want to spoil the ending of the the Showtime series on HBO, but uh, it's it's great stuff that it obviously is not there's not enough time in the world to cover all the great nuggets that that we've seen. Uh, so yeah, you want to start with your your first uh, great nugget from the from the book. Yeah, so uh, f- the first uh, little nugget is uh, a playoff game against the Sonics in 1980 uh, at the University of Washington gym that they had to play thanks to a Mariners game uh, and the ice capades as well. So it, it was the 8,000-seat arena that was used usually for uh, intramural games. What is that? that it's just like you know intramural college sports where it's like it's not uh it's just you just sign up and play it's not quite pickup but it's organized by the school um uh, it gives you an idea of the era of the nba that we were dealing with in 1980 this was the era of like tape delayed playoff games of coach travel like economy travel these guys were not making all that much money and the fact that magic johnson made i think he got a deal worth 500k a year, and it was like the the craziest thing ever. So it's it's a nice little time capsule. The fact that they were forced out of the arena or the stadium because the the uh, Sonics used to share an arena or stadium with the Mariners, and they couldn't use the other arena in downtown Seattle because of the ice capades. So that that tells you where the NBA was in the hierarchy of pop culture. There, man, Magic Johnson uh 500,000 you know his contract with Jerry uh bus was a uh, uh 25 years 25 million dollars i do and it was like the biggest it was the biggest controversy like this is an absurd amount of money for that for that and then you get i don't know Tristan Thompson making 20 million a year like it's nothing john hollinger gave chandler parsons 94 million dollars how about that one of the, the all-time finessers in NBA history. <laughs> Why don't you what, help guide us through the second nugget here? So the second one is, uh, so we talked about how the, the Lakers were always looking for those auxiliary pieces um, to, to fit with Magic and Kareem. And one of those guys was Spencer Haywood, um, who was a good player, but he had a, a dark past and a dark history of, of drug addiction. And essentially... Uh, I believe is during the 80 finals or 81 finals, uh, Paul Westhead basically kicked him off the team because of those drug issues. He would show up to practice, you know, high off his ass or, or coming down off a high. And he's just not a functional member of the team. And Spencer Haywood did not appreciate that. And he was apparently uh, in the process of trying to get Paul Westhead killed by hiring some, some old buddies from his neighborhood and I think his mom caught on to it on a phone call and, and helped, you know, convince him not to do it. But uh, Westhead and Haywood had a funny uh, interaction several years later after Haywood cleaned up his act where, you know, Westhead thanked him for not succeeding because, you know, he's still alive thanks to that. So that was the NBA in the 80s, cocaine and hitmen and trying to get your coach killed. <laughs> it is a wild, wild story. I was shocked after reading this that and and you know Westhead was like i didn't have an earthly idea like i could have i could have been killed and the, no one would have known i would have known it would have been a successful hit 
This would have been like Draymond calling, you know, some hitmen from Saskatchewan. Uh, not Saskatchewan. Where is he from? Uh, Saginaw. Somewhere. Saginaw. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and saying, hey, man, uh, Steve Kerr played Festus Azili and Anderson Verjow in game seven of the NBA finals. Can you uh, take out his brakes or something? Yeah. Cut the brake line. Yeah. Cut, cut the brakes yeah. on his Tesla. He wanted to kill him for being kicked off the team for being a cokehead. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. The next one I got, it, it's nothing crazy. It's just a, a one that I appreciated as a Raiders fan. So during the uh, the 88-89 finals, uh, apparently Al Davis felt a special kinship with the Detroit Pistons because of the whole bad boy image. Uh, and he sent them a bunch of silver and black sweaters or, or varsity jackets, something like that, to, you know, to show his appreciation for the things they did. And he also helped his uh, or had his training staff help the Pistons with Isaiah's ankle injury uh, during those finals. So just a funny thing, Al Davis was not one for, you know, civic pride and the kinship of being LA teams uh, along with the Lakers. He didn't give a shit about any of that. And he just loved the bad boys. So that was just a, a little one for me. No, that's cool. Uh, Al, Al Davis stories that uh, sprinkled across history. Ugh. Yeah, man. The guy was everywhere. Um. This is an interesting one. And for me, it was shocking because I had heard this about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but it was very well reported in this book or heavily reported that uh, he was an asshole. (laughs) I'd heard that he was an asshole, but the book gives several reasons into it. You know, there was a lot of racism he had experienced throughout his life. He didn't really trust coaches. Uh, and it was pretty funny. There's like a nugget about a kid saying, Mr. Uh, Kareem, you're my favorite player. And he says, kid, go fuck yourself. Like he didn't have any regard for how he spoke to fans uh, or, 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 or anyone like that. I think there was another one where uh, a guy said, oh, my God, my wife just had a baby or something. And you're our favorite player. And he says, I don't care. And they're like, yeah, they call him, you know, the N word. And he goes, well, I'm glad that I didn't uh, give them the autograph that they wanted. So he did, he definitely felt that because he was famous is, is why people adored him, but he found, he felt that a lot of it was disingenuous. There, there's a story that, that Perlman tells, um, I think when, when Kareem was in high school and he played at a, a majority white high school with a white coach. And I guess he was playing pretty poorly in the first half um, and his coach at halftime to try to get him riled up says, Kareem, you're playing like an N-word. And, of course, that got a reaction out of Kareem, and he kicked kicked ass in the second half, and the coach said, yeah, see, I I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was going to motivate you by talking to you like that. And apparently after that, Kareem had real trust issues with any authority figures, with any coaches. Uh, Even John Wooden, who we know is kind of like a magical grandfatherly figure in, in college basketball, uh, Kareem would would say that, you know, he felt that Wooden would treat him differently than his white players. Like, you know, he was nice to him in practice and things like that. But, you know, he just didn't feel that same connection. Maybe that was just, you know, in his mind, but it, it makes sense. Right. The guy was, you know, he's a, a light skinned black kid growing up in New York City, uh, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s. So it's understandable why he would be uh, you know skeptical about race and why he's treated because or why he's treated so, so, uh, you know, so well by the white public is, you know, if he wasn't a basketball player, he's definitely not, not getting treated this way. Um, so, and it's, it goes against 
everything that we see about Kareem now, he's like this big teddy bear, right? He's this old guy. <laughs> he's, he's so wise. And, um, you know, he's like a Yoda type figure, always, you know, writing very insightful columns and in, in, uh, uh, on, on medium and on his website and stuff and trying to give guys advice. So, uh, yeah, I didn't, I definitely didn't know that he had that reputation. Yeah. I, I, I subscribe to his Substack. I like some of the stuff that he puts out. Um, I do agree. He's like a, like an old softy now. But one thing I wanted to discuss about this that just piqued my curiosity is, you know, a lot of athletes today create their own path to telling their stories via podcasts, documentaries. You saw like The Last Dance, uh, LeBron has The Uninterrupted and The Shop and Durant has The Boardroom. And we saw, you know, a lot of like, like The Last Dance 30 for 30 was all Jordan's narrative. Even Magic Johnson has one coming out uh next month but i think athletes are kind of sick of journalists speaking on their behalf although i don't it's not absolute that all journalists are out obviously to ruin athletes via stories but athletes do want their side uh to be a little more favorable and for their voices to be heard and they feel misunderstood and jeff perlman i thought didn't pull punches in some of his criticisms of kareem I was a little surprised by it, but I, I guess I'm not used to his his writing style. Um, for example, he said, Abdul Jabbar, uh, though he contributed to causes and read extensively and was, along with Nevitt, the most intelligent of Lakers, he possessed the emotional IQ of a toddler. So I guess my, my question is, like, what's your reaction to that? Like, obviously, Abdul Jabbar didn't like reporters is this is Perlman's criticism a result of reporters not being held favorable in Abdul Jabbar's eyes or is it more to more to it than that I think it is it's definitely more to it than that right I mean I think he this was a, a different time a different era where you know Kareem was was a big part of uh you know at the athletes taking part in the civil rights movement so him and Jim Brown Muhammad Ali you know, there was a lot going on in the country, a lot of things that he uh, was upset about and, and had, you know, very good reason to be upset about. So you can understand why he was kind of cynical and skeptical about everything and why, you know, he could just see that he, he was like the opposite of magic, right? Magic kind of was like OJ, right? He's like, you know, he was kind of existed outside or he thought he existed outside of like the bounds of race, like you know, I'm not black, I'm OJ. So magic didn't say those things, but he's like, I'm not, you know, black, I'm magic. You know, that's, that's what people see me as. I, he wanted the love of the people. He appreciated the love of the fans. While Kareem was, had a very skeptical view of it was according to this book. And according to some of the things is, that he said was that, you know, he understood that the reason that he's being approached for autographs uh, was because of, of his fame, his talent. And if he was just another black dude walking around, he would not be treated this way. And that made him skeptical and, 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 and he didn't trust anyone because of that. He always thought that people had an ulterior motive when, when trying to talk to him. And he just, he didn't have time and the patience for these fans. He was just out there to, to win and, you know, do his thing. And he's just, he's also just such a unique character during that time, right? He was like openly Muslim. He changed his name uh, to a, a very Muslim name. Um, he was one of the first athletes to do yoga, like, and, and talk about it as, as some of the benefits uh, to his game. So he was just an interesting guy. And I think that if he did have his own outlet, maybe he could have explained himself a little bit better, talk about 
why like like he does now right with these the the substack and these other mediums that he has he could have talked about why he's so upset he could have voiced his opinion on these issues and talked about these things and maybe explained why he was such a grouch and of course like i said he had a lot of good reasons to be grouchy yeah that's that's well said um i i agree i think it is more of just a period thing it just it happened in the 80s and if kareem existed today i think the narrative would be very different for sure and you know even the way we talk about athletes now versus back then i mean now we talk about athletes mental health and giving them you know the grace to to not to fail so much but just to be themselves and to uh you know be i don't know if emotional is the right word but basically back then it was you know shut up and dribble you know you shouldn't have opinions on these things you should be grateful that you are, you know, rich and, and young and, and, and wealthy and, and successful and all these things. And look at all the great stuff that America has given you as a black athlete. Well, now it's like, you know, you can talk about those things and talk about the other side of that coin, you know, and the fact that they still experience a lot of the, the racism and things that, that, that everyday black people do. So, yeah. You know, so maybe, be, maybe Kareem's moody, brooding uh was necessary for history as a result of him not feeling like he owed anybody shit because of what he went through growing up yeah and he definitely did it you know <laughs> uh all right next one here is magic johnson this is my observation is magic johnson's sex addiction <laughs> if he was reportedly having sex more than once a day and uh, there's a funny nugget in the book about it. Uh, I mean, before we talk about that, I mean, were you surprised by how heavily reported it was? This guy was a freak. Not at all. I mean, from what you knew about, about the, the NBA in that era and, and everything that we knew about the Showtime Lakers, I knew that, that Jerry Buss was like famous for being kind of like the Hugh Hefner of the NBA, you know, this older guy that always had you know, two women, like a half his age or a third of his age on his arm. So it was just the era. It was like an extension of the disco era. It was the eighties. It was partying and, and cocaine and not quite free love, but just free sex <laughs> everywhere you went. <laughs> um, and it was like Magic Johnson picked up the mantle from, uh, what's, what's name? Will Chamberlain, right. As being like, you know, <laughs> the dog in the NBA um, so I think some hearing some of the the details of like the 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 shady details of the stories and the things that used to go down at, at Jerry Buss's house and at Magic's house and at the Playboy Mansion and all that stuff. Um, and at the Forum Club, which was, you know, for those who don't know, there was a nightclub in the same building where the Lakers used to play, and it became like the most exclusive nightclub in, in LA. Maybe even calling it a nightclub is generous, it's more like a sex club. Uh, given how exclusive and secretive it was. And this is the era before camera phones, before all this other stuff. So you could go there and nobody would know, you know, you could, people could say, oh, hey, I saw, you know, such and such player at the forum club, but if there's no cameras, nobody can prove it. <laughs> you could tell like the way they're, they're depicting him in this HBO show is like, he's he already saw it from far away and was like, man, they're about to make me look, like a freak and he got a phone call from apple and said let's put out that documentary right away about me and so i could tell my story and not look like a sex freak yeah let's let's talk about like the softer side of magic <laughs> yeah, yeah everyone loves magic not because of that it's funny 
uh, there was uh, the reports about Jerry Buss's uh, parties at the mansion. And when Magic would host his parties, they would have this rule where like everyone that attended the party has to be gorgeous. All the women have to be by unanimous consensus gorgeous and uh, every man and woman by midnight uh has to uh, ha- by midnight has to be having sex or be or have plans to and if they're not he would run up to them and go what's going on why aren't you getting busy everyone's supposed to get busy it's magic's party it's a t- different era right it, there's no me too there's no you know concept of uh you know all this other stuff i guess that that we talk about now uh, and it's it's crazy, man. You just you think about what we think of magic now. He's like, again, this big cuddly teddy bear. He's a great businessman. He has, you know, uh, funny tweets where he, you know, he's not purposely being funny. He's funny on accident. Um, <laughs> and you don't think of him as this this player, right? The the most eligible bachelor, even though I think he was in a relationship at the time, but that didn't seem to matter to any of the players. Uh, because of the um, amount of women and, and uh, you know, such that they, they used to spend time with. So there's a there's a funny uh, story in the book about how I, I forget which uh, who it was in the Lakers organization had their car in the shop. So Magic let him drive his Mercedes. And when he was driving it around doing some errands, the hood, something under the hood exploded. So he calls and he says, Magic, I got some bad news, man. Your car blew up. And his response was, were you able to save that phone number of that girl that was in the glove compartment? He's like, magic. <laughs> Listen, your $40,000 car is sitting in the middle of the street on fire. And he's like, forget about it, man. I'll have someone pick it up later. Did you save that number? I mean, it's, just, it's a credit to them, like for, for still being the, the dynasty of the 80s with all this, uh, all these distractions happening around them. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's tremendous all right that that was good that's uh our, our our show this week on uh the showtime lakers and top scenarios and, and what if moments uh for a very very rich part of of nba history uh we'll probably do one on general lakers uh history or post showtime history something like that there's a lot of lakers history to cover uh but we we appreciate everyone for listening uh tune in uh for this podcast feed it has its own feed now so if you don't know that we're on our own feed here on 4040 vision uh but you can still find me and also on the sls uh podcast feed the sideline sports podcast feed where we do standing on the sideline twice a week uh so please keep an eye out for that uh, on all our socials and, and follow uh, us and follow Khaled. Uh, and, and I and my Twitter account that doesn't get enough hits because I don't know how to promote it. So thank you again for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Thanks, everybody.